So starting in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And if we go over to 23 through 25, we hear this, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So I have been part of Renewal Church uh, since its launch, which uh, gets me absolutely no prizes. Um, I've just been here, and I'm honored again that the elders have offered and allowed me to speak again today. Uh, we're going to begin next week, and I hope you're here, and there were some cards out there in the foyer. We're going to begin next week uh, a sermon series focusing on the book of Mark. Um, the elders plan, they're going to present it uh, verse by verse from the pulpit, and we're going to continue studying on in home group. So I want to reiterate, if you're not in a home group yet, get in a home group, please. Uh, there's lots of leaders here, we'll help you out. Uh, and if the scripture journals that Colton asked me to order actually get in <laughs> this week, everyone's going to get a journal to go along with this study of Mark. It has the verses printed on one side and uh, lines on the other. So uh, each person's going to get that tool to help throughout the study. I hope you are as excited as I am today. Um, however, this is not the introduction to Mark, as you probably figured from the opening video. It's not uncommon for churches to have some sort of positive rallying sermon on the first Sunday of the new year, is it not? As a society, we have seen and will continue to see advertisements and encouragement to set new goals, to start new journeys, make changes, and become a better you. It is enough to annoy you to the extreme. When Colt and I first talked about my initial thoughts on the topic, he was cool with where he thought I was going until he heard my first working sermon theme, which was abandon hope, failure is forthcoming. I'm a bit cynical, which surprises many of you, I know. Still, if an arbitrary date change on a calendar is necessary for you to make a change beneficial to you, I hesitate to say it is important to you or that it will last. What spoke to me then and now is that when we decide we know the best course of action for anything and plan it ourselves, we are destined to fail. This is not a new concept. I would argue that this notion that I can do it myself stems from Genesis. When we look at Genesis 3 verses 4 through 6, we read the following, and it should be on the board. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. 
probably heard that before. It's at the beginning. Usually people read the beginning of the book. The enemy was technically correct, technically correct in everything he said. They wouldn't die from eating the fruit and would be like God, knowing good and evil. However, it was what was not said that affects us to this day. They experienced death due to the sin of choosing to disobey God, not from the fruit. And they may understand good and evil as a concept, but since they are not God, they do not know how their choices and how their choices would and will impact humanity past the immediate, right? I want to focus on the second issue and how we can understand it today, which is, again, how does our actions go past the immediate? By knowing good and evil, we are now confronted with the need to judge all of our choices, right? All of them, no matter how seemingly small, using some framework. Here's where I'm going to get a little technical, but not go too deep. So it's okay, because Colton told me not to. Okay, so we met. So for the professing Christian, we're talking about biblical ethics, right? Ethics, that's what the framework. In, in David Jones's book, An Introduction to Biblical Ethics, he has defined the term as follows. This is not on the board, but if you want to write it down, um, more power to you. You can have my notes later. But biblical ethics is the study and application of the morals prescribed in God's word that pertain to the kind of conduct, character, and goals required of one who professes to be in a redemptive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Y'all got that? All right. For anybody groans either out loud or internally, we're not going super deep down that academic path. No worries. This will probably be on the test, but it is open notes. So I hope you're taking it. <clears throat> I want to throw out two methodologies. Are we ready? All right, it's give and take. Are we ready? All right. <laughs> We're going to throw out two methodologies regarding ethics as they apply to us today. Doing what is right, that's in quotes, stems from generally one of these two methodologies. Is there outliers? Of course there is, but we're going to focus on these two. The first is popular with our fallen world. Consequentialist or utilitarian ethics. Okay? It focuses on what produces the most good for the group. The consequences of the moral event determine moral, play, moral praise or blame. In that sense, it is a system that operates on knowledge gained after the fact. It also requires the group, any group, to determine what is best. It is not concerned with the past in so much that a consequentialist may decide that what was right in the past is not right today. Sound familiar? Okay. Speaking in the broadest terms, the end goal of an individual's choices not only moves, but can change directions completely. There is no anchoring point. The second ethical framework is a fun word to pronounce. I had to practice a few times. Deontological ethics. A big word that refers to the process of making ethical judgments based on the morality of actions when evaluated against prescribed morals and their conformity with them. That can be good only when the prescribed morals or moral authority are good. 
For the believer then, what's our moral authority? Moral authority is based on Scripture, right? That's where it comes from. It's God. Our actions are only moral and good when they align fully with the conduct described and explained in Scripture. Make sense? If we do it on our own and through our own understanding, the downfall of either system is our existence's finite reality. This means we ain't living forever in these bodies, right? And we lack something else, omniscience. We do not have, and if anybody wants to correct me, we can, but, but we do not have unlimited knowledge and understanding and do not always know the absolute reality of all things in all places. True? We're tracking so far. That was the fine print the enemy did not share in Genesis. We aren't God. And that's what he didn't share. We know good and evil, but left to our own devices, we tend to make decisions focused on ourselves rather than God. It is the reality of our nature that was corrupted by sin. Without always keeping God at the forefront of everything, that's everything, we risk acting in a manner that may seem ethical, but ultimately dishonors God. So if we're talking about false hope today, which is what it said, right? We should probably share my working definition, and that would probably be beneficial for y'all if I'm talking about it. So there are many available options of false hope, but I like this one. False hope. What is false hope? False hope is charting a course of action intending to create the desired result based on irrelevant or irrational information or personal ignorance. That's false hope. It is such an issue today that psychologists actually have a term for it. It's called false hope syndrome. Not making it up. <laughs> it exists. False hope syndrome. Interestingly, as defined by psychologists, the issue seems to focus on the continued belief of certain outcomes when all evidence points to the contrary. It's basing our hopes on the results of our actions on something other than God knew. Something that is a 20th or 21st century construct? Well, let's look. Turn with me to Isaiah 57, verse 10. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. It's a small little snippet, but in Isaiah we find several charges uh, laid against God's people. In that particular verse, in that instance, it's a reminder that even though they were tired of the disappointments experienced in pursuing relief with idols and false teaching, they kept changing their focus to something new to find relief. Everything, that is, except for God. This idol didn't work, so let's go to that idol. This process didn't work, so let's try that process. Does that sound familiar? Nobody does that today, right? Not us, maybe just me, but you know. In several commentaries, it equates the Israelites' pursuit of idols 
and lesser authority to make it easier to exist and to feel like the standards to follow were not too high. So what does that mean? They didn't like God's rules. They didn't like his nature. So they said, well, what about this person, this idol? That's, that's easier to follow. This doesn't have the same rules. That's, that's more fun. <clears throat> Surely, society today, or even believers, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't base decisions on a standard that is easier than God's and more palatable to the masses, especially those that are not believers, would we? So let's look at emerging research. Because if you know me at all, you know I like to research things. I'm one of those weird persons that actually reads the instructions and the manuals. Now, I put them in the way after reading, but anyway. So let's look at emerging research from organizations that study church and denominational splits, because that's always fun on, hey, it's a new year, let's have fun. Message, right? Talking about denominational splits. <clears throat> it becomes apparent that it's not this church is more liberal and that church is more conservative. There's a demonstrable difference in opinions on social and ethical issues within the individual congregations. So it's not simply, oh, yeah, they split because of this, that, or the other. The smaller gatherings tend to have a homo more homogenous or opinion that's, that's the same, and larger gatherings have more differences in opinion. Again, this is all just general commentary based on the research. Ironically, the tension between differences in opinion is sometimes more open in a smaller church. In our short existence at Renewal, I think we've experienced that tension in several instances, some small, some pretty large. And why is that? Well, and what is that? And what do we have? Uh, two years ago, from my research and discussion with pastors, uh, I can tell you that we should have ceased to exist as a body of believers. If we followed what the world says, we should not be here meeting and gathering together as a church. That's what society expected. That's what several churches expected. But we're still here today. And the only reason is because instead of seeking a worldly example to follow, as a church, we decided, and as a, a gathering, we decided to reset our path and focus solely on God and his word. We took us out of the equation because we were the problem not God, okay? Did we have some missteps? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we did. I even had to apologize for making mistakes. I know that surprises some of you, but even I had to. Will we make mistakes as we continue? Yes, but as a body, we have determined to hold ourselves to a system of what kind of ethics? deontological ethics that holds God and his word, the Bible, as the moral authority we will follow. And because of that, we will not always make decisions popular from a societal stance or world view. To that, I say good. We're not living for this world. So we we're not living for this world. We are to seek the creator in all things. What happens if we continually 
seek to lead ourselves by our own understanding. We fall into that trap that the world lays for us. Well, sometimes it means God will allow us to continue on that path and experience the consequences. So let's flip over to Deuteronomy 32, 18 through 20. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. Sometimes he gives us what we ask for. God's people in this example continually rejected him and his commands. They spent so little time in the presence of the creator that they naturally began to mock him. Do not be fooled. When we reject God's expectations for us, we mock his nature. This warning is not for those that do not know him. Hear that loud and clear. I'm not preaching to someone who doesn't know God, who doesn't have Christ. This is a warning to us as believers. This warning was for those that claimed to be close to him and speak on his behalf. When they claimed to know the Father, yet acted in a manner that was in opposition to his nature, God was not just annoyed. Okay? He was active in his spurning of them. We know that from Matthew 7 that many will cry out, Lord, Lord, yet will still not enter heaven. That is reserved for those that follow the will of the Father. The same is true for Israel in Deuteronomy. God actively ignores them. He removes all of his blessings and he allows them to experience life separated from him. But surely that couldn't happen today, could it? The answer is yes, it could, it can, and it will. Happy New Year. Okay. <laughs> However, there is something we can cling to and handle this reality. The answer is that we need to cling and hold fast to God, study his word, and live a life that shows that the blood of Christ has redeemed us. Does this mean that we will have no trouble? Nope. Again, we are living for an eternity spent in the presence of the Lord, not for the acclaim of those dead in spirit and worthless idols. So that brings us to today's focus, which is abandoning false hope. The writer of Hebrews warned us in chapter 10, 29 about abandoning true hope. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? So when we forsake Christ, we trample his sacrifice and declare him unworthy. We claim that his grace is insufficient when we do that. You may remember that opening video. A little bit different, right? 
as I was talking through today, praying over it and meeting with those holding me accountable, the image of the world claiming do this or do that, and you will become a new person was stuck in my head. You know, abandon the hope of Christ and try this new diet. Abandon church and try this new series. Abandon all those morals and structure because we're open to everybody and should accept everything. Sound familiar? I kept hearing that. So abandon that hope that Christ gives. The right diet, the right plan, the right clothes, the car, the right study guide. That's all you need. Or maybe follow this person or that one for the life advice or business direction. How many people have emails that they get every morning about, you know, business this or that? A lot of us. I used to. You name it, and a person or company is making a profit by telling you how to do it better. And as I considered all the proceeding, I had this image of it all being trampled. Because we trample what we believe has no value. And all the things and programs promised by the world have no value to us or more significantly to God. So I saw God trampling all of that and telling you to abandon the false hope of the world. So where do we find true and everlasting hope? if the things of the world only offer us false hope. Let's go back. We're finally back to 1 Peter. Let's go back to the first three verses of our central passage this week. 1 Peter 3 through 5, chapter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. First Peter is written to those believers who were dispersed across the different regions of Asia Minor and faced persecution for their faith in Christ. Likely, this was a mix of Jewish Christians and Gentile converts. It was not a fun time. Persecution generally is not. But Peter reminds them of the hope that they have. He starts verse 3 by declaring a blessing to our God, who is our King, our Savior, and our Prophet. There is no other in existence that is exalted higher. It continues, and he continues, by declaring that we are born again to a living hope in the resurrected Christ. This living hope that we now have as believers is not based on anything that we have done. Rather, it is solely based on the mercy of God. All our blessings are from God's mercy, not man's merit. Offering a blessing to the Lord is the natural result of experiencing His mercy, especially if we consider the fruit it produces in us, which is a real hope not a dead, perishing hope the world offers. Rather, it's a living and durable hope founded on the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We will always owe our best blessings to God's mercy. The evil in the world is from man's sin, but all the good in it is from God's mercy. Our hope in Christ is not just a concept either, some undefined thing. In verse 4, we see it, is an inheritance, something that is given to the Father's children. Not only is it all good as it comes from the Father, 
but it is also guaranteed to have four particular aspects in the verses. Let me write you down. The first aspect that is that our inheritance will not perish or fade away. Everything in this world will eventually change states, and worldly things always go from better to worse. It always deteriorates. Our inheritance will never get worse, and there is nothing better than our inheritance. The second aspect is that our inheritance is not defiled by sin or corruption. No part of our inheritance is less than the true majesty and glory of the hope that is found exclusively in Christ. It is undefiled and pure in every way. The third guaranteed aspect is our inheritance will never fade in its glory nor become less. How often have we sought something with all of our being only to have the joy it brings fade away to the point where we pursue something else, right? The favorite toy that we wanted at a certain time, the job that we wanted to hunt after, this, that, or the other. That's not so with the hope found in Christ. There is nothing better. Finally, the fourth guarantee is that our inheritance waits for us in heaven, in the presence of the Lord. It is something held for people that have no redeeming qualities that they could claim that would gain them access to heaven. It is for those that claim that their only hope for the inheritance described is in Christ alone. And that's it. And then verse 5 holds with it an encouragement to persevere for the original audience of 1 Peter as well as us. The encouragement is that God holds the inheritance for us and will provide it at the appointed time. We're to have faith in the saving grace of Christ, believing our salvation is wholly dependent on the blood of Christ and that our hope in Christ will outlast all things of this world. At the end of all things, we will have the inheritance promised and revealed to us by the Lord. Make sense? It's all about Him not us. And then if we go over to verses 23 through 25 in 1 Peter. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It reminds us that as believers, the hope that we have been afforded through our new birth in Christ is imperishable and assured through the living word of God. As believers... We are connected not only as brothers and sisters in the Lord, but also in the shared hope in the living and active Christ who has defeated death. Our hope is the eternal perfect sacrifice, the eternal priest, the anchor that we hold fast to, staying the course no matter what the world throws our way. Unless we forget it, in verses 24 and 25, remind us that no matter how cool or how popular or influential someone is, 
or revered that they are, their fate is the same. Everything of flesh will wither and die. At the risk of eternal separation from God, we should not put our hope in anything in this world, be it a person, process, or something that we have always done it that way. And our last promise in verse 25 is that the word of the Lord remains forever. It has been the same from Genesis to Revelation. God never neglects or denies his nature to make it seem he is closer to our depraved nature. He will never deny any part of his sovereignty to make it easier for his creation, like they were searching for for those idols. That is not our Lord. On the contrary, he will keep the promises he has made and declared throughout Scripture. He will raise those he has marked as his up. He provided the way for his creation to be in his presence for eternity through the blood of Christ. Real and true hope is not based on what we can do as we will always fall short. Our hope is based on the promise that the appropriation of our sins was fully accomplished on the cross. That is the hope I pray you will take with you into the coming year. May all that you do, all of your interactions and all your choices reflect God's will and direction for you. 